Speaking of journeys, uh, we're uh, on one right now uh, through this sermon series called Acts of the Apostles, how a handful of nobodies became a movement for everybody. And this is a 26-part um, series, and we are uh, in part 14 today. So we're, hey, in the home stretch. Y'all excited? We're more than halfway there. So uh, it's been, a, it's been a, an awesome journey so far. We've got a little ways to go. Today, we're going to be thinking more about that word journey. It's a little... It's just um, so perfect for what we experience as believers, and it's so forgotten and underappreciated how your life in Christ, if you're a Christian, is a journey. It's not a one-and-done thing. It's not he makes you religious and you're good. It's a journey he calls you to, and it's it's exciting and life-giving and wonderful. And if you're not a Christian yet, what he calls you to is this exciting adventure, this journey that we talk about. It's not just he's going to make a churchgoer out of you. You're never going to get invited to parties. You're never going to enjoy life again. But hey, you get to go to heaven when you die. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. And sometimes we mischaracterize what the Lord wants to do with us, what he calls us out of, and what he calls us too. And so we're going to talk about that some today through the lens of um, the story arc of one of my favorite guys in the Bible, um, Simon Peter. So we're going to find him in Acts chapter 10. If you want to open a Bible with me, that'd be great. Maybe a Bible app. If you've got it on your phone, no judgment there. If you've got a Bible at home, be sure and um, open it up. I love people getting familiarized with their own sort of copies of the Bible um, rather than just watching me read it. But, um, but let's dig into it today. Acts chapter 10. Verse 1 is where we'll start. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to all um, those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, what's interesting about this is Cornelius is not a Jewish guy up to this point. Except for the Ethiopian eunuch, all the Christians were Jews. All the the good guys in the Bible were Jewish guys, pretty much. And so we have a non-Jewish guy. Not only that, a Roman soldier, a Roman leader in the the army of Rome, uh, a centurion who is God-fearing and good and devout and generous. Like, this doesn't compute. That's what you should be hearing here. We're going to talk more about Cornelius two weeks from today on the 31st. but, But he's part of our story today as well. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. Cornelius distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Very specific instructions there. When the angel spoke to him, uh, had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city of Joppa, Peter, Simon Peter, went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. That ever happened to you? Happens to me all the time. Fall into a trance, I get hungry, I think it's a man thing, we call it hangry or whatever, you're just like, ugh. All right, this is what's happening. Apparently great things happen when you're hungry because what happened next is Peter saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. 
It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Those are all things the Old Testament says, do not eat if you're a faithful Jew. Do not eat these things according to the letter of the law. Then a voice told Peter, uh, Simon Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter replied, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. All right. I love the story arc of Simon Peter. We're going to get to know him a little bit more today. Um, Simon Peter was a fisherman by trade. How many fishermen do we have in the house this morning by show of hands? One? Two? All right. I like it, Ryan. Yep, yep. The reason there aren't more is why? They're fishing. That's exactly right. Thank you for your honesty. That's the wife of a fisherman talking, I think. So they find God on the water or whatever they say, and uh, they're out fishing on most Sunday mornings. Fishermen are a very um, interesting bunch of people, aren't they? They're very committed to their sort of thing that they love, very passionate. It comes with the territory, I guess. And, and I've got a lot of friends that are really into fishing, and they like to brag about it on, you know, Instagram and, and stuff and, uh, and show all the fish they caught and how they're teaching their kids to fish and all that. And it wouldn't bother me except for the fact that I absolutely stink at fishing, and I don't know why, because I'm a small-town boy. I'm a country boy. I'm from Red Lake, Texas. You're supposed to know how to fish. If you're from Red Lake, Texas, it's like a prerequisite to be, you know, to belong in Red Lake. You have to fish and hunt and do manly things. I've been fishing so many times, y'all. I'm not exaggerating. Like, I've been fishing so many times. I have never caught anything worth keeping. Never have I caught anything worth eating. I've never even caught anything worth Instagramming, that's how bad it is. I just, there's nothing to show off about. It's just terrible. I call it the Huffman curse, and I can't break it, no matter how hard I try. And so, yeah, I see those Instagram posts, and they, it's like rubbing salt in the wound a little bit, you know? It reminds me of my inadequacies as a man and a red lickian, if that's what you call us. And, and I, don't, I don't like it that much. I, I've talked to God about it a little bit, and nothing seems to break the curse. There's something about fishermen that, that, that Jesus saw, specifically in Simon Peter, but I think in fishermen more broadly. I mean, when Jesus decided to start his ministry and he wanted to bring in an inner circle of followers, disciples, where did he go first? He went to the fishermen, right? And so I started looking online this week about what it is that makes fishermen fishermen. Like, what's the, the makeup of a good fisherman in terms of character and tendencies? And I saw things like, you know, patience makes a good fisherman and attention to detail makes a good fisherman, and a good memory makes a good fisherman. And it, it became very clear to me why I stink at fishing, actually, because I am not a patient man. Everybody knows me. I'm not very patient, you know. I'm not, I have no time for the details. I'm not a details-in-the-weeds kind of guy. And um, what was the third one? Anybody remember? Anyway, it doesn't matter. So the, the whole thing is I have none of those traits. So what do you do when you don't have the traits that seem like they're, you know, requisite traits to, to do a thing? It just feels pretty hopeless. Well, whatever, whatever it was Jesus saw in Simon Peter, um, he called Simon Peter into his service in Matthew chapter 4. And there's this uh, really important verse where I think Peter first experienced Christian salvation. Matthew chapter 4 verse 
20, it's very simple. It just says, at once they left their nets and followed Jesus. So Simon Peter and his brother Andrew left their nets, left their boat, left their career, and followed Jesus. There was something so pure and so good and persuasive about Jesus, they wanted nothing else but him. And, and so they left everything behind and went after him. Now, I look at this moment in the story of Simon Peter as the moment salvation came to his heart. Now, there are theologians, probably someone in this room, that are going to disagree with this. I just need some grace here. What I mean is Christians understand that when someone trusts Jesus enough to put their faith in him, leave everything behind and follow him, technically that's the moment of salvation in that person's life. Now, I know Peter wasn't saved officially until the crucifixion, resurrection. Pretty big deal, pretty important. Nevertheless, work with me here, people, okay? So in the moment that Peter said, I don't need my old life, I just want my new life, and Jesus' salvation came home that day. But what's interesting is that wasn't Jesus' end goal with Simon Peter. Because Jesus could have simply said, believe in me, be saved by me, receive me, and left it at that, handing out salvation like $20 bills, like Secret Santa on the shoreline or something. But that's not what he did, is it? What did he say to Simon Peter and the others? He said, follow me. It's an invitation into more, an invitation into a life, a journey with Jesus that will change their lives in ways they can't even begin to fathom when they take that first step. This is how it is with all of us. This is how it was with Simon Peter. It was just the first step in the journey. It was an important step. Your first step with Jesus, an important step. Sometimes we overplay that hand, though, and we make people feel like, or we, make, we give people the impression, let's say, that that first step is all there is. That's all that matters. And then what happens is you take the first step, and nothing really changes in your life. And we set people up for all kinds of disappointment, don't we? We're like, hey, come to Jesus, be saved by Jesus, your whole life will change. And then people say yes to Jesus, and there's nothing more we show them, and they just become churchgoers, and they keep committing the same sins, and getting into the same thought patterns, and making the same mistakes that they made before Jesus. And the question enters in, what difference does any of this make? And I know there are people in this room who've experienced that. Some of you are experiencing that right now. You got excited about Jesus, you met him in a real way, and now you're kind of wondering, what difference does he make? Because I'm still struggling the way that I was. I still have the same temper that I did. I still have the same anger issues that I still react to stress the way that I did. I still have anxiety or depression. I still cope the way that I coped. I drink the way that I used to drink. I have the same sexual temptations that I used to have. What difference does it make? That mentality, that sort of thought process comes from looking at life with Jesus as a one and done kind of thing, where Jesus just says, come and be saved. It's not, that's not all there is. It's an important step, but it's one step of many. He says, come and follow me. Now, if any of this sort of describes you and where you are, I just want you to know you're not alone, okay? I want you to pay attention, because this is important, actually, because this is where the enemy comes in especially early on in people's faith journey with Jesus, when you think it's a one and done thing and it hasn't really taken, hasn't really stuck with you, you're like, what difference does this make? The enemy will come into your life in some way or another to try and distract you and take away from the experience that you had with Jesus. You know that it was real, you know that he is real, but you start to wonder if this is real. 
like what difference does it make if I'm still the same sinner I was before? So he'll try to plant little doubts in your mind and get you off track. He will. I've seen it. I've seen people get excited about their experience with Jesus and then fade away because it just didn't seem to change them as much as they expected it would. It's only because they haven't accepted the invitation to follow Jesus. They believe. They're saved. Their soul is secure, but they haven't followed him yet. And the invitation of Jesus means there's just so much more. This week on the Maybe God podcast, I had a great interview, a great talk with a, with a, a really talented author. Um, but the more I learned about Vesper Stamper, the more I realized she by statistical analysis, she would have no business becoming a Christian. She was born in Nuremberg, Germany. She's artistic. She's got a nose ring. I don't know. I don't know if that matters, but like she's just, she's not what you would think of when you think of like normal church going American girl. Like, and, and not only that, but her experience growing up, she experienced real abuse, like at the hands of, a, of, a, of an uncle sexual abuse from an early age. And when she brought those allegations, that abuse to light, other women in the family started saying, yeah, same, same happened to me. So there's all kinds of pain in her story. A lot of it coming from the hands of uh, the men in her life. But then in her late teens, at just the right time, Vesper met a man. I wanted you to hear part of her story today. For a long time, all I knew, and really all I still know, to be honest with you, really all I know is that I met this man. Hmm. I, I can't, in fact, in the darkest times where um, in those 30 years, it's not like everything got perfect by any sure. means. No, believe me. <laughs> um, the pain didn't stop. The suffering yeah. didn't stop. There's a lot of ways in which it's been, it's re reached new levels. Hmm. But I know that I met him. Hmm. And there were times where I was tempted to walk away. And I would hear him say to me, yeah, but, but you met me. You know me. You know me. You know me. You're what, not going to leave. What is it? And, and I would say, yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> what was it about his person, about his character, that mm. you fell in love with initially? Do you remember? I don't know if it's necessarily qualities as much as it is just him. Mm. I can't escape him. Mm. I can't escape him. He's... Um, he's so present. How is um, uh, Jesus different from the other men that you had known to that point mm. in your life, at least? He's never hurt me. There's something different about Jesus. And whenever you begin to doubt what he's done in your life, because you keep going back to your old ways or because whatever reasons you might have to doubt. It's important to remember, as Vesper did, that you, you met him. You know him. He's real and he's different. He's not just the only man. He's the only person who will never exploit you, including your own friends and family, by the way. He's the only one who will never exploit you or use you for his own ends or his own purposes or for his own sake. He comes alongside of you for you to create in you the person you were made to be in the first place before sin corrupted you and every one of us. That's 
who Jesus is. And remembering that, remembering what he's done for you is so important. And that's what Peter had to learn. He had to learn it the hard way. Peter's soul was secure. He was with Jesus, but man, did he mess up. Man, in like some royal ways, Peter really, really messed up. I don't know if you can relate. I can, but man. Now, you know, another thing about fishermen is that they're enthusiastic. Peter was super enthusiastic, but there was like a, there was another side of that enthusiasm. We saw it break through in some good ways. Like think about when, um, let me think, when Jesus walked on water, of all the disciples in the boat who were all freaking out, only one of them was like, I'm coming too, Jesus. Who was it? Simon Peter, and he had about two seconds of glory walking on that water before the wind blew and he freaked out. But anyway, it was enthusiasm that drove him there, and it's a beautiful thing to behold. He's such a lovable character, this Peter guy. And when Jesus was sort of quizzing his disciples to sort of gauge where they were at in their understanding, he said, who do you say that I am? Only one disciple had the answer. Who was it? Peter, you were the one. You're him, as the kids say. You're him, Jesus. You're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one we've been waiting for. Only Simon Peter spoke up. When the authorities came to arrest Jesus and, you know, put him on trial in that mock trial, that, that kangaroo court they put him through, like, who was the only one who not only bore arms to the arrest, but wielded a weapon and used it to cut off the ear of one of Jesus' assailants? Who was it? Tell me, Peter. You think Peter was really good with a knife or really bad with a knife? That's the age-old question that I can't wait to figure out. Like, he's either an expert, he was aiming for that ear, or it was just whatever I can hit. You know, I don't know which it was. Nevertheless, he's enthusiastic about protecting Jesus. But the dark side of enthusiasm, I don't know what you call it exactly. Maybe when it's shallow enthusiasm, it can be impulsivity. And impulsivity can be driven by fear, just as much as anything, and self-interest, you know? Because just moments after he bravely defended Jesus with the sword and cut off the guy's ear, Jesus stood trial. Peter stood within earshot of the trial. Jesus stood within earshot of Peter. And three different times, people said things to Peter like, hey, aren't you one of his? And Peter said what? No. No, I'm just here, hanging out at the trial. Hey, aren't you his disciple? Aren't you with him? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, don't you know him? No, I've never seen him in my life. And Jesus heard these words, ultimate betrayal. Oh, we talk about Judas betraying Jesus. This was in some ways even deeper, like denying even knowing him with him within earshot, just absolute betrayal. I can't imagine the pain that that caused, and it, it certainly wrecked Peter. We're told Peter uh, ran out of, that, out of that courtyard where he was, weeping bitterly. I think what happened is Peter surprised himself. Like everybody knows we're capable of some bad things, but do you ever surprise yourself with what you're capable of? It's like, wow, I didn't know I even knew those words I just said to that stranger on 610. Wow, wow, I'm, I've got more problems than I thought. Wow, where did that come from? Wow, like, like sometimes we can, our, our, our own depravity can shock us. And I think that's what Peter found out at that trial. Like he wasn't, as uh, brave, courageous, or loyal as he thought he was. And what happens whenever that occurs to us is shame. The shame for Peter was so thick and so heavy that it drove him away from Jesus. Like there was a moment in time where Peter 
the leader of the disciples stopped calling himself a disciple. The, the Bible, for just a moment in time, refers to the disciples and Peter as though he wasn't one of them because he didn't think he belonged anymore. Because how could he? He screwed up. He dropped the ball in this most important moment of Jesus' trial. He denied Jesus three times. How could he do this? And so, what did Jesus do? Jesus sought Peter out. Why? Peter was already still technically saved, I think. I think, you know, it's hard, if not impossible, to out the grace of God that we experience in salvation. So why did Jesus still seek him out? Because there was more. There was more than just the one and done moment of salvation that Jesus had in mind for Peter. And so Jesus chased Peter down after the crucifixion and resurrection to make him breakfast. And if you want to get to a man's heart, amen. <laughs> Make him breakfast, a hot breakfast, cooked over charcoal on the shoreline of a beautiful body of water, and he, he will give you his undivided attention. So that's what Jesus did for Peter. And then he sat down with him and asked him a few questions. Actually, he just asked him one question three times. What would you ask Peter in those moments, in those circumstances, days removed from the ultimate knife in the back? What would you ask him, Peter? How could you? Peter, what happened? Peter, what did you do, man? Why? Jesus didn't ask any of that. He wasn't interested in Peter's answers to any of those questions. It, I would almost venture to say it didn't matter to Jesus. Jesus asked what mattered. And the, the question that mattered to Jesus was, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Let's, let's put that behind us, what happened. I don't need an explanation or excuses. I don't, I don't need more tears or, or regrets, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's immaterial. Peter, do you love me? Three times he asked him, do you love me? Why? Because that's all that matters. Even when the world's falling apart, even when you've screwed up beyond your own imagination, what you thought you were capable of, the only thing that matters in the aftermath of all that failure is, do you love him? Do you love him? If you do, there's a way forward. If you do, he's got a plan for you. If you do, there's a place at the table for you. Because that's who he is, all forgiving, all loving. And so we see a different moment in Peter's life now. The first big moment in his journey with Jesus was salvation. That happened in Matthew 4. But that wasn't the end of his story. There was also this other huge step in the journey that I would call restoration, which is where you, come, you become aware of how deep your sin goes and how much deeper the forgiveness of God goes. And you come to, to grips with who you've been. You, you look yourself in the mirror and you're honest with yourself and with God and you receive what he has to give you. Restoration. You, you realize who he is and who he says you are in those moments. If you're stuck just, you know, in that first phase and you haven't experienced that come to Jesus moment of restoration and that, that Peter did, I, I encourage you to take Jesus' invitation seriously. Come home and be restored. All he wants to know is if you love him. So, Peter's second major step was his restoration. Jesus saved him, restored him, and even still, there was something more. That's what we've been looking at through the book of Acts. It's like restoring Peter wasn't the end of the story either. There was something more that Jesus had in store for him as we saw in Acts chapter 10. Something beyond even Peter's wildest imagination. Because Peter was a Jewish man, 
a man who loved the word of God. And he had always been taught that the word of God and the love of God was for some people, but not for all. People that were raised, you know, in the Jewish faith, Jewish people, people who follow the law. I get to select few, but those are the people that are nearest and dearest to the heart of God. That's what he had always been taught. And we express and experience that identity through, you know, following the law of Moses. And so that's why Peter was so appalled at the thought of eating all those foods on that sheet that was coming down from heaven. But it's even wilder than that, y'all. Because if you paid attention to the story as we read it, you, you heard that God had stationed Peter for this moment in a city called Joppa. Now, Joppa was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty notable town. Now it's part of Tel Aviv, you know, which is a very notable town. Joppa is here in the middle of the map. It's a coastal port city. Gaza's down below it. Caesarea, where the story, today's events take place, about 30 miles north along the shoreline. But God wanted Peter in Joppa in order for him to be called to Caesarea. Why? That's the question. Goes on my mind this week. Well, it's interesting. If you are a Old Testament nerd at all, you probably have heard the name of the city Joppa, or Jaffa, as it sometimes is called. The only other really noteworthy time that Joppa comes up in the Old Testament is in the story of the prophet Jonah. If you know the story of the prophet Jonah, um, you know that God called Jonah to go and preach salvation to the Ninevites, who were like you know, these, the enemy of God's people. They were pagans. They were dirty people. They ate dirty things. They, they, you know, worshiped in sex cults and temples, prostitution, all this stuff, all these reasons why a, a good upstanding man like Jonah would not go and be around them. God said, go preach Jonah to the Ninevites. How did Jonah respond? About like Peter responded to the sheet of food, right? Is, this must be a test, God. Never would I ever, like never have I, like, that, like no way, not me, Lord. I'm with you, Lord. I don't need all of this, you know, this filth and these people. And, and so God called Jonah out of Joppa in the same way God positioned Peter in Joppa to call him out to go and communicate the gospel to people that Peter did not think were acceptable. Peter, people like a Gentile Roman centurion. Keep in mind the Roman soldiers were the one that had nailed Jesus to the cross, and now we're supposed to be accepting them and loving them. No way, Lord. The plot thickens when you realize that uh, oftentimes Jesus referred to Peter as Simon, son of Jonah. Simon's daddy's name was Jonah. God has a sense of humor, y'all. That's what I'm saying. He's a poet. Nothing's an accident, right? You're thinking, that's weird. What happened to me? It seems like a weird coincidence. There are no coincidences with God. Pay attention, and you'll see his poetry playing out in your life. And if, if, if Simon Peter was paying attention here, he would see it too, much to his surprise. As it turns out, God loved the Gentiles just as much as he ever loved the Jews. God loved those who were far from him just as much as he loves those who've never left his side. God's got room for everybody in his house. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, Christians, folks that are far from him, folks that have never set foot in a church, everyone can come to the party he is throwing. So Peter had his eyes open the first time in Matthew 4 when it was time for his salvation. And again, at his restoration in John 21, but even then there was something else, something more, and this was God's revelation. 
The revelation of God has to do with his will and his truth. And there is more for you. After you are saved by Jesus, restored by his grace, there's more for you to discover in him. Peter discovered it. Acts chapter 10, verses 28 and 34. These are his words. He said, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. It wasn't about the food. It wasn't about the different animals on the sheet, was it? It was about people. I should not call anyone, he said, impure or unclean. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Peter's box was too small, in other words. He was trying to keep God's love limited in his own religious construct. We do it all the time. If we're honest, I still get these revelations all the time from God. It's like, wait, you want me to tell who about you? Like, you want who to come to this church? Like, you want this church full of what kind of people? Like, like the most... God thing ever is when I'm talking to somebody who's a Christian or a pastor in the city, and I'm like, yeah, so-and-so goes to the story. And they're like, really? Them? Does the roof fall in when they walk in the door? Like, that kind of stuff. Those are the ones God wants here the most. Think of the people you think are farthest away from the kingdom of God or from understanding who he is, from living the way we're called to live. Think of the people, whether it's a group of people or, you know, uh, maybe it's a political party or maybe it's a certain kind of person, maybe it's an actual individual. You think they could not be farther from God. They're the ones on the heart of God today. And he might be positioning you in such a way, poetically, beautifully, to be the one to speak to them and reach out to them. It's the most beautiful thing ever when we see this revelation. I see it coming from guys, especially guys that come to uh, Jubilee Prison Ministry weekends. We've had like prosecuting attorneys end up inside of prisons, spending time with guys, the likes of which they've been sending to prison their whole lives, coming to this deeper awareness of the, of the grace of God seeing that God can, can and does reach people and wants to reach people inside of prisons every bit as much as he does outside of prisons. God wants every single criminal to come to a living, vibrant, eternal faith in Jesus Christ. God wants addicts to come to faith in him. God wants to know the, the people that might not ever consider darkening the doors of a church on a Sunday morning. God wants to know the people who, based on their track record, don't belong at all. God wants to know people like me. God wants to know people like us. And, and in some ways, Peter had to live the life that he lived to be ready to receive the revelation that God had for him. Do you understand? He had to fall the way that he did. He had to fall on his face the way that he did at Jesus' trial in order to be ready to receive this call from God to go and reach the lost because Peter himself had felt so lost. So I look at it in sort of three steps of our, of our journey with Jesus. The first one is this salvation where, where really we proclaim who God is. And a second step that's very important is this, uh, this sort of restoration where God reminds us who we are. And then there's this third step that can last a lifetime, really, where, where, where we uncover deeper and deeper truths. By his grace, he shows us there's more and more to his word and to this life we're called with him. There is always more to chase after. Your faith should never be stagnant. It should never be merely religious. Jesus didn't take a cross 
He didn't die on a cross so you could become a good churchgoer. He came to give you so much more. There's going to be a lot of talk this week about the real meaning of Christmas. I'm here to tell you this is it. Jesus came to walk among us so that the whole wide, stinking, sinful world might know how great and wide and vast and deep is the love of God in Christ Jesus and how there's an invitation at the heavenly banquet with every person's name on it. If they would just come home, it can be for them. If you're already a believer, I would ask you to challenge yourself as we near the end of the year. How is God calling you, challenging you, calling you out to take a deeper step of faith? Who is he calling you to reach in his name, to speak to, to minister to, to love? It might surprise you who he's calling you to. And if you're not a believer yet and you've held back from taking that step, mostly because, let's be honest, you see the Christians in your life and they're not that different from the non-Christians. And you're wondering what difference it really makes to come to faith in Christ. As a Christian, I apologize on behalf of all of us. We're a bunch of screw-ups and we admit it, okay? But if that's what's holding you back, remember the only question that matters is do you love Jesus? Take me out of the equation. Take the church out of the equation. Take these long sermons out of the equation and ask yourself that one question, do you love him? Because that's all that really matters. If your answer is yes, he's ready for you to come home. And I believe that is what Christmas is all about. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the steps you've um, taken us on along this journey. I thank you for your patience with us, your kindness, your grace, as we have stumbled and fallen at times. Lord, I thank you that you never give up on us. You never use our past against us to add shame upon shame. All you ask is, do you love me? Do you want to come home? Lord, there's no one like you. We're sorry for the ways we failed you, but we know, Lord, all you want is to know us again, to love us, to welcome us home. I pray that that's happening right now in the hearts and minds of everyone here and those watching and tuning in online. We pray all these things with grateful hearts this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.